Well, if you've been with us, you know we've been tracking through the Gospel of John. And as we've been working through the Gospel of John, one of the things that we've noticed is we've noticed this terminology of the hour. And up until John 12, where we've just been, we've seen that this hour was always something that was to come. And as we get into John chapter 12, we we see that the hour, Jesus is no longer speaking of as coming future tense, but it has arrived in John 12 and verse 23 Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We know that the hour that he was speaking of was the hour of his death. But Jesus isn't just looking to the cross, he's looking past the cross into what, what lies ahead. And as we come to the end of John chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus says this, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus' mind, while yes, focused on the cross and that hour for which he came, is also focused beyond that. And as we continue to move through the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus turn his disciples towards the mission that he has for them After he leaves the earth. And so in John chapter 17, we have that high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus prays this for his disciples, starting with verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. When Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room, when all the doors are locked... For the first time that he appears to them, he says this in John 20 and verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so, I'm sending you. Now in that upper room, and hearing these words, was a man. A stubborn, rough-edged man by the name of Peter. Who desperately loved Jesus Christ, lived with Him, walked with Him, argued with him, seemingly on a regular basis. But Peter would accept these words. He would be so contaminated by these words that Peter would never go back to the life that he had before. In fact, Peter would take these words of Jesus Christ and he would faithfully preach them and seek to live them to the end of his days. Not perfectly, but faithfully. It is that Peter that, as I understand it, wrote this letter. And that's what we find in in the first verse of 2 Peter chapter 1. It says that Peter wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to believers. The second part of verse 1 tells us that. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The ours there I take to be the apostles by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now Peter wants something for these believers that he's writing to. He wants them to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 2 of chapter 1. And then all the way at the very close of the letter, the very last verse, the last things that Peter mentions is this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's Peter's goal. That's his desire. That's what he wants to see happen. He wants to see them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now in order to do this, Peter wants to stir them up. 
He uses that terminology in chapter 1 and verse 13. He wants to stir them up. And then he will see it again in our text in chapter 3 and verse 1. This idea of stirring up is to stimulate. It's that notion of someone who's nodding off. Not that anyone in here would do that right now. But just imagine that somehow that happened and somebody was nodding off and then they get that elbow in the side and it kind of stirs them. It wakes them up. That's what Peter wants to do. But his intention in doing this is not to come with some new clever teaching, some new hyped up thing, some new idea that that no one's ever heard before and wow, he's going to throw this out there and people are going to be like, oh wow, that's amazing. That's not it. In fact, he specifically says that he didn't come to them with cleverly devised myths. In fact, what he's going to warn them about are those who have come in this way. He consistently warns them throughout this letter of false teachers that were present and would continue to be present. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. That future tense is not to say that there weren't already false teachers, but it's rather to say that there will continue to be false teachers. These false teachers, Peter says, follow their sensuality, chapter 2, verse 2, and that in their greed they exploit believers with false words. No, Peter's intention is not to stir them up with something new. His intention rather is to stir them up by way of reminder. And what does he want to remind them of? Well, I think one of the centerpieces of this letter we find at the close of chapter 1 Verse Starting with verse 20 where Peter says this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's intention is not to reach forward to something new, but rather Peter's intention is to turn their focus back to the faithful, true teaching of the Word of God. That's where they will be stirred up. And it's only through God's revealed Word that they will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now we also know, because Peter tells us in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that he is at the end of his life. Verse 14 says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, in John 21, Jesus and Peter have another conversation after Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus tells Peter that a day is coming when he will have his hands bound and he will be led away where he doesn't want to go. And John adds this note that This was to speak of the kind of death with which he was to glorify God. Apparently Peter is at the end of his life, and so here at the end of his life, his desire is to stir up these faithful believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now the immediate context of our passage is that all of chapter 2, Peter has just totally blasted these false teachers. Verse 17, he says that they are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And now you'll notice in chapter 3 there's a shift. 
Peter's attention, rather than dealing with these false teachers, is now shifting back towards these believers, and he wants to encourage them. And so that's where we're going to dive in. He's, he's shifting, not disconnected from, but shifting his focus to these believers. And one of the first things that I think we get here at the beginning of this passage is Peter's goal. Peter's goal. And his goal is this. To reawaken minds to the truthfulness of God's Word. To reawaken minds to the truthfulness of God's Word. This is what Peter says. This is now the second letter I am writing to you. Now, I take that first letter, that reference there to be First Peter. And he calls them beloved. A term of endearment. A pastoral mind that Peter has and heart that he has for this peop- these people. In both of them, I am, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Here we have that term again that Peter's desire was, in fact, to stir them up. That, that idea of sincere mind is of a pure mind, honest understanding. I think what Peter's talking about here is only something that's possible for a believer to have. A pure mind, a, a clear mind, able to see and understand. And his intention to do this, as we mentioned, is not by something new, but rather by looking back at what has already been revealed. That's what he says in verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. So here we have Peter referencing the predictions of the holy prophets, which would be the Old Testament, And also referencing what would be the New Testament in the commands of Jesus that were passed down through the apostles. Peter is saying to them, look, if you want to grow, if you want your sincere mind to be stirred up, if you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, there is only one way to do that, and it's to go to the Word of God. Now I know that that, and sometimes that seems so simple, and it seems it seems almost like well, kind of duh. We knew that already. That's kind of a Sunday school type of answer. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are constantly bombarded with the temptation to seek an intimacy with Jesus Christ through other means. There is always that temptation to say, yeah, you know, the Word of God, that's great. But what I want is I want a genuine experience, and we can label it whatever we want. Statistics tell us that we live in a time where people are less religious than ever before, but somehow they are way more spiritual than they've ever been. And that mindset has not stayed outside the church, but it has come into the church. And there are plenty of people who will tell you to put aside the Word of God and to seek some experience with Jesus Christ. But this is Peter. Peter had experiences with Christ. He walked with Christ. He touched Him. He hugged Him. He walked on water with Him. He was saved out of water by Jesus Christ. If any man was going to say, put aside the Word of God, let me tell you about some experiences with Jesus, Peter could have done that, but that's not what he does. Instead, he says, you want to know the Jesus that I know? Go to the faithful, true Word of God. In order for our sincere minds to be stirred, we need to be reminded of the truthfulness of God's Word and we can never, ever, ever put it away. 
Any book, any pastor, any teacher, any teaching that minimizes the Word of God while seeking to elevate Jesus Christ is a fraud. Because Jesus Christ is known through His Word. So, Peter here reminds them of the importance of the Word of God And he's doing that obviously because of these false teachers. And the second thing we see in this passage is a a warning and a correction. A warning and a correction that starts with verse 3. And I would sum it up this way. You can schedule the scoffer's arrival, but do not succumb to their scoffing. You can schedule the scoffer's arrival, but do not succumb to their scoffing. Verse 3 starts in this way, knowing this first of all. Now Peter's used that reference before and it's his way of drawing attention. He's not speaking of order, but he's speaking importance here. Pay attention to this, he's telling them. That scoffers will come in the last days. Again, he's using the future tense to say they're here and they're going to continue to be here. Alright, they're going to come, you can schedule that. Mark it down, it's going to happen. Probably the idea is even that they're going to increase in number. Now we need to define what a scoffer is because a scoffer is not just simply an unbeliever. A scoffer is not someone who's indifferent to the truth. A scoffer is not even just someone who's heard the truth and rejected it. A scoffer is someone who has heard the truth, rejected it, but has now taken the position of mocking or manipulating that truth. And Peter says that there will be scoffers And then he goes on to say that they will be scoffing. That's just to insist upon. Hey, look, how will you know that they're scoffers? Well, how do you know a duck's a duck? If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, flies like a duck, swims, duck. Right? Not rocket science. Scoffers will come and you'll know them by their scoffing. And when will they be here? Well, they will be here in the last days is what Peter says. Now this term last days we need to define as well because Peter has in mind here redemptive history. He's thinking all the way back to creation and the fall of man, all the way to the end times. And when you look at redemptive history, the last days in its broadest sense are from the first coming of Christ till His second coming. Those, all of those can be, are called the last days. Okay? We are in the last days. We are in the last days because there's nothing else that needs to happen in redemptive history between the first coming of Christ, which has happened and He's ascended back up to the Father, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we are in the last days. These days which Peter is describing are the days that we are in. And he says that these scoffers will follow their own sinful desires. Now that's not a shock to us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 tells us that those who are in sin are actually even enslaved to their own sinful desires. They want to justify their way of living. We see this all around us. We see people, we hear this message. The idea is still there that somehow deep inside we're really basically good people and we just need to follow our hearts and be true to who we are and follow our dreams and don't let anybody question you or downplay you. or No, be true to who you are. You're beautiful no matter what they say. Right? 
Well, that was the idea of these scoffers, and because that was their idea, they could not handle an absolute objective truth that would come in and be held up to their lives. And certainly they couldn't handle the idea that there would be a final judgment in which that absolute standard would be held up against them and they would be judged. And so, in order to write all of that off, in order to be able to follow their own sinful desires, they needed to deal with all this nonsense about an absolute truth and a Messiah who's already been once and is coming next time, not as a baby in a manger, but as a king with all authority. So they come, and you can schedule that, and they have a tune, and Peter's going to tell us about this tune of theirs that they like to play. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Now you see, they know some truth. We should never be shocked that false teachers have elements of truth in their message. They had an element of truth. They had heard of the second coming of Christ. That shouldn't be a shock because the second coming of Christ is something that's all throughout Scripture. It stretches back into the Old Testament, Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Matthew 16, verse 23. Over and over again, Scripture talks about a coming king and judge. So they know this message, they've heard this message before, but they don't like this message. And so they take up this taunt. Well, where is he? He's supposed to be here. Where is he? Now, this is not a new tune. Okay, this is this is this might be, you know, it's like when you dress up an old song, right? You can put new beat to it and that kind of thing. But it's the same. It is the same thing. That's what they've done. This is nothing new. When God spoke His word through the prophets in the Old Testament, this was the same type of 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 response that came from those who scoff. Isaiah chapter five verse nineteen. This is as God speaks about the coming destruction of His vineyard, which was Israel. This is their response: Who say, "Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it." Again, in the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah, as he prays for deliverance because Judah has rejected his message, he says, this is their, this is the language that they use. Jeremiah 17, verse 15. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. This taunt is nothing new. Nothing new. And they've taken it up here again. Where, where, where's the promise of his, of his coming? For, and this is the reason that they give, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, obviously fall asleep is the, the idea of to die, and the fathers here I think is probably referring to the fathers in the Old Testament. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The early church believed in an imminent return of Jesus Christ. They believed that He was coming back, and, and, and I, as I understand it, some of them thought He would come back before that first generation of believers had died. There was even misunderstanding that John lets us into when Jesus made that prediction about Peter's death. There was even misunderstanding about John because Peter, in his classic gentle ways, 
as Jesus tells him he's going to die, he's like, well, hey, what about John? If I'm going to die, what about, hey? And Jesus says, look, if I want him to live until I return, that's my business. And there was confusion about what that meant. And as that spread out, and John tells us about that in John 21, they believed that Christ was going to come. I think their, their belief in His imminent return, one, came from His teaching because Jesus loved to use that language of His return coming as a thief in the night. But also because they desperately longed to see Him again. And to be with Him. And to see His kingdom. He had told them to pray that way. So their taunt is, where is he? And then they say, listen, all things are continuing as they have been. Nothing has changed. One day comes after the next, which comes after the next. Maybe here they're willing to tip their hat and say, there was a God and he made things. But once he made things, he just let it go. And this, this bad boy's just rolling. You know, it's just doing its own thing. And nobody's interfering here. Don't you see that? I mean, what miraculous thing happened this past week for you? What amazing thing happened in your life this past week? And nothing's happening. How many events do you already have planned for next week? And the week after? And the week after that? God doesn't interfere in this system. This is, this is, this is just the way it is. What is is what has been. Now, we might not have people who rise up and take this same type of taunt about them, but, friends, the way that we elevate science in our day and time speaks to this very thing, to this notion that we live in a closed system. A system in which what's here can be studied and observed, and once you find out what's here, you can find out what's always been and what always will be. And only in a system like that does science become elevated as the almighty and high religion in which scientists become the high priests. That can tell us what is and what was and what will come. They tell us all things about ourselves based upon the study of what is. It is so easy for us to fall into the temptation of just looking at the rhythm of the world and being lulled to sleep by this message. We might not take up their scoffing. We might not with them join in and voice and say, yes, I agree with you. But it is so easy in the rhythm of life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it just, it just keeps going one week after the next, one month after the next, one year after the next. And I'm just living my life with no genuine expectation that Christ one day will break through those clouds. With no genuine expectation that all that is of this world upon which we are sitting right now will be destroyed in fire. And so although I might not take up their taunt, their tune can lull me to sleep and my life looks almost exactly like theirs. The way I spend my money and I use my time and I plan my days looks almost exactly like theirs because I buy into this notion the world's just moving along as it always has been one day to the next. Nothing's changing. But here's the correction that Peter comes in and he offers in verse 5. But they deliberately overlook this fact. I think the idea there is that they so much want to believe one thing 
that they deliberately overlook something else. It's the guy who is all googly-eyed over a gal and he sees her and she's amazing and he's got all these daydreams about how they're going to date and they're going to get married and what their house is going to look like. And meanwhile, he's so infatuated with that that he ignores all of the ways in which she is telling him to get lost. Well, here, they are so desperate to follow their own sinful desires and to create their own reality that they are overlooking what is right in front of their faces. And what are they overlooking? Well, this is what Peter says, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the Word of God. That planet that you're on, Peter says, oh, by the way, that planet that you're living on, that planet that you're saying has this rhythm to it, that runs so efficiently, guess how it got here? (laughs) Guess why it runs so efficiently? Guess what wisdom was woven into this world at the moment of creation? It proves, not disproves, the power and authority of God. Because as we go back to Genesis, we see this in Genesis in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that God, and this is I think what Peter's referring to here, that God separated the waters above from the waters below. And then in verse 9, He separated the land from the waters that were below. And He did all of that simply by the power of His Word. He spoke and it was. He speaks still and it holds together. So the fact that creation works is not a testimony to God's lack of involvement, but a testimony to the power of His Word, the very Word that they rejected. Not only that, but He continues and says, and that by means of these, verse 6, the these I understand to be the water and the Word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now what is He referring to? The flood. You're denying that a coming judgment is going to happen. You're denying it based upon the fact that this world just keeps going as it has been. Well, let me remind you, God made the world and it holds together by the power of His Word. Let me also remind you, Peter says, that there has already been a judgment that fell upon this earth and it happened by the power of the Word of God. That when God said for there to be a flood, there was a flood and He judged this world once. Now, here in our church, in this local community, we believe in a literal six-day creation. That's at least what we have on our our doctrinal statement. We believe in a little six-day creation and we believe in a literal flood. Now, I tell you what, folks, when we begin to rewrite the beginning of the story, it changes the entire story. I've told this to the students before. If you take the story of Cinderella and you make Cinderella an elephant and then try and keep the rest of the story the same, it doesn't work. It does not work. Here Peter is taking these literal facts of God's speaking the world into existence to prove the power of His Word and the reality of the flood to prove the power and His ability to judge. I think Peter takes them very literally. And he uses them as facts of the power and authority of the Word of God. And then he continues and he says this, By by this the same Word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. God has created the world 
by water and, and his word. He judged the world by water and his word. And he will judge the world by his word and fire. It is only God and his word that holds this world together. And there is a coming judgment. And at that coming judgment will be the destruction of the ungodly. Now that does not mean that the ungodly will cease to exist. But they will be judged once for all. And as we're told in the book of Revelation, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Now we're going to see more about this coming judgment, so let's continue on. The next thing I think we see in light of this reality, in light of this truth, in light of a coming judgment that has been promised, Peter gives an exhortation and an application. He gives an exhortation and an application. I would sum it up this way, cling to the one who counts and carry out his mission. Cling to the one who counts and carry out his mission. Now remember, he's speaking to the beloved. He's speaking to believers. And as he reminds them of of God's power in creation, and God's power at the flood, I can almost hear them sitting there saying, but where is he? Remember, if you can remember, 1 Peter was written to a dispersed church that is undergoing severe persecution. And they're looking around them and they're seeing all of the persecution. They're seeing what's going on and they're saying, where is He? Beloved, we live in a very unique period of time in a very unique country. But if you will look outside of this, if you will even allow yourself to look beyond the circus that we have for an election this year, if you will look beyond the borders of the United States, then you will look to what's going on in the world. When you look at North Korea and Syria and Somalia and you see the devastation that's taking place, when you look at the injustice in the world, when you look at the death and the disease and all of the things that are pre in the name of a God that are leading millions of people astray, I think you'd take up the same voice as these believers and say, God, where are you? How long, O Lord, will you wait? How long will you wait? And so in verse 8, he gives this exhortation and application, but do not overlook this one fact. Don't miss this, he says to them, beloved that with the Lord a day is that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now Peter here is borrowing from Moses in Psalm ninety and verse four, where he says, For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Now this is not some type of divine formula, so you can keep your your uh, smartphone tucked away. No need to open up your calculator app and start, okay, you got a thousand day a year, carry the four, divide by five. This is not like figuring out God years like we try and figure out dog years. I've never quite got that one. That's not the intention here. The intention is for Peter to make a point, a point that I think Isaiah made so clearly. Isaiah 57 verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits 
eternity whose name is holy. Our God is not limited by any day planner. He's not limited by a calendar. He's not limited by a clock. You cannot contain Him. He is not contained by the limitations that we have. And we so often project our limitations onto Him. I'm limited by time, therefore God must be limited by time. I see one moment after the next, after the next, and I can only ever live this moment, no matter how powerful and rich and successful I am, I only get life one moment at a time. But God inhabits eternity. And yet He does act at precise moments in time and space history. It is to say that God is greater than time, but He's not ignorant of time. That's why in Galatians 4.4, Paul makes very clear that at the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. At just the right moment. Peter goes on here, and what does he say? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Why are we slow? Well, we're slow because we're limited. Right? We're slow because we're limited. I make a promise and then either limitations from the outside come in and keep me from fulfilling that promise. Those limitations could be traffic, could be something else came up, something that I forgot. There's all kinds of limitations from outside that could keep me from fulfilling my promise. We're also limited because we're, we're limited on the inside. <laughs> and sometimes, you guys don't write this down. But sometimes, you know, people ask you to do stuff. And you're like, sure. And while the word sure is coming out of your mouth, you're going, don't say sure. Don't, don't agree to that. You don't want to do that. And so what do you immediately begin to do? You begin to search for every excuse under the sun to not be where you said you would be and to not do what you said you would do. We are extremely limited. That is not our God. He is not limited by anything on the outside of Him. He is all-powerful. He has all authority. He has all time and all resources. Nothing is standing in His way. And He has never once, for the sake of peer pressure or good southern hospitality, made a promise that He did not desire to keep and fully intend to keep. He's not slow, never slow. So what is He? Then where is He? Why hasn't He come? And this is what Peter says. He's not slow. Now there's a contrast. You see that word in verse 9, but. He's not this. He's not slow. He's not limited by time. So then what is He? This is what Peter says. He is patient toward you. Our God is not slow, but He is a God who is forbearing. It's what He told Moses as He passed in front of Him and declared His name to Him. That He was a God, Exodus 34 verse 6, slow to anger. That's the word. Forbearing. Our God is a God who is patient. He forbears. It's exactly what Paul says in that great passage in Romans in chapter 3 when we're reminded that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. God was forbearing. He was patient with His chosen people Israel. The blood of goats and lambs and bulls could not pacify the righteous wrath of God. The only reason, and He told Moses this, when He said in that that whole Exodus narrative on the mountain, when He says, go Moses, I can't go with you because if I'm in your midst, I will consume you. But he goes with them. Why? Because he was forbearing and patient. Forbearing. He was waiting for the coming of his son and he poured out his wrath on his son. Our God is a patient God. He's patient. And what does Peter go on to say? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The idea wish fits perfectly here. This is not speaking to God's plan, but it is speaking to his heart. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, God says this as He's talking to the house of Israel, desiring their repentance, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. God's gracious salvation is a sincere offer to all humanity. The electing work of God is not in competition with the great heart of God in His love for the lost. There was a point in time, beloved, when, when the electing work of God was so strenuously taught and so strenuously followed that the idea of foreign missions was almost completely abandoned in the church. If they're elect, they'll come anyways. And what they failed to remember was that the heart of their God is a heart that desires that none should perish. But that all, and I love that word, reach for repentance. It's the idea of make room. To just make room. God is forbearing that He might make room that all would repent. Now we know that this is not to say that all will repent. Jesus was very clear about this in Matthew chapter 7. He used the illustration of two gates. One's narrow and few there are going to be who find it. And one is wide and it leads to destruction and many will find it. But if He and His forbearance would allow that just one more reaches that narrow gate. One more. And so He's patient. Desiring that all would reach repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord is a term that's all throughout Scripture. Nineteen clear times in the Old Testament. We have a reference to the day of the Lord in four clear times in the New Testament. It is a awesome day and a horrifying day, sometimes to speak of immediate coming judgment, but many times to refer to the ultimate coming judgment of the Lord. The Bible is very clear that there is a coming day of judgment and it will come when we least expect it. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 and 2 that it will come like a thief in the night. When we're sleeping, when we don't expect it, and what's going to happen on this day of the Lord that Paul is speaking, uh, Peter, excuse me, is speaking about here, he says that the heavens will pass away. 
and all will be exposed. This word roar, this noise is like a rushing wind. It's like an arrow passing. It could also refer to that hissing sound that a fire makes. He uses this phrase, the heavenly bodies. Literally, the idea is the elements will be destroyed. Now, I don't think Peter understood this, but as I understand and as I study this, I think the idea in mind is that basic building block of all existence, which is the atom. And history has testified already to us what happens when the atom breaks down. The earth will be disintegrated. The heavenly bodies will be disintegrated. And all, Peter says, will be exposed. That is to say that from the time man fell, what did he do? He tried to knit fig leaves together and hide behind trees in his shame. All of that will be gone. There will be no more fig leaves. There will be no more trees. There will be no money to hide behind. There will be no reputation. There will be no job titles. There will be no social clubs, popularity status, cars, houses. There will be none of that. It will all be burned away and we will stand exposed totally before God. The idea is to find, to be found. Then Peter begs this question in the application Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God? Now, I know that sounds like a question, but it's not a question. It's an exclamation point. We are to be waiting for the coming of the Lord. This is not an inactive waiting. This is the idea of looking what, what I picture in mind is the, the, the Jews as they waited for the angel of the Lord to pass over Egypt. They waited fully clothed. They waited with their sandals on. They waited with their bag packed. They waited with their staff in hand. They were certain it was coming. They were waiting and they were anticipating it was going to come. And then he says, hastening the coming of God. Now this is in no way to give the idea that you and I can force God's hand in coming. Scripture is clear that it is God and God alone who knows the day and the time, and it is for Him to choose, but yet it is also clear that God delights to fold our actions into His divine plan. And so He tells us in Matthew, when He's teaching His disciples how to pray, Matthew 6, verse 10, to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does Peter say? How do we await the day of the Lord? How do we hasten this? The first thing he says is what he's mentioned already, that we ought to have lives of holiness and godliness. It's what Jesus prayed in that prayer. If I'm going to pray your kingdom come, your will be done. What I'm asking is that the will of God that is done now in heaven happen here on earth. And if I really want that to happen and I believe it's going to happen, then I should live like He's King now. Not just an exterior devotion to a religious system, but with an interior affection for Him. A growing longing to see Him and to be with Him. A desire that grows by the Holy Spirit that says, I do not find contentment in the things of this world and the pleasures of this world. I am longing for the One whom I love. And my life reflects that. That ought to be true about us. 
It ought to be as Asaph said in Psalm 73 verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. God is my portion forever. Could we look, beloved, at the way that you've conducted yourself this past week? Could we look at your bank account as compared to those who don't believe in the impending coming of the Lord? Could we look at your day planner and the way you conduct yourself and say there's a clear difference here? David Platt said this, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfortable, not health, not wealth, not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks all things. But in the end, such risks find its reward in Christ and He is more than enough for us. When the writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses was willing to give up all the riches of Egypt for the sake of Christ, I do not think on the last day Moses is going to be like, Daggummit, I could have had the riches of Egypt. I just got Jesus. No, I think He would do it a million times over. And so it ought to be in our lives. What else should be true? How else are we to hasten the coming of the Lord? We ought to hasten it in our pleading and going to the lost. If we are in love with this God, if we desire to see Him and be with Him, if our heart is being conformed to His heart, our mind to His mind, our life to His commandments and His truth, then there's no way that Peter can tell us that we serve a God who's not limited by time and He is not constrained by anything but His own forbearance, desiring that none should perish but all come to repentance and we are not moved towards the lost. Here's the reality, folks. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says this. This is what Peter's talking about in this passage. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. For His presence, earth and the sky fell away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the book was opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. And each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. John 3, Jesus said in verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. So as He sent out His 72 in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, earnestly pray, plead, to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. It's why as He ascended up into heaven, He said, go. Go because there is a world of people, billions of people, who are dangling by the silk thread of God's patient, gracious forbearance that is the only thing keeping them from an eternity apart from God. 
And if the heart of our God, if the heart of our God is that none of them would perish, but all of them would reach repentance, then we have to be busy about the work of proclaiming this gospel. Because we believe that God literally created this world in six literal days, and that He holds it together by the power of His Word, and that He judged it once, and He's holding it together now, and He's going to judge it again. That day of judgment will be great rejoicing for us because as the passage closes out, verse 13, there will be a new heaven and a new earth and righteousness will dwell there and we will have great joy. Beloved, I assure you of this, all that we invest for the sake of knowing Christ and proclaiming the hope of Christ to the nations will not be wasted. John Piper said this, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a world a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for Himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of His name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections in line with His. And for the sake of His name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join in His global purpose. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word, and I thank You for this powerful passage of Scripture. I pray, Father, that as we think about the imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that it would motivate us to lives of godliness, and that it would remind us of the task that we have been given to take the Gospel to our neighbors, to our family members, and to the ends of this earth. Encourage us, convict us, motivate us to that end. Use this upcoming missions conference to do that very thing, Lord. We pray that You would use the speakers who will be here, the missionaries who will be here, to encourage us and may we encourage them and may we exhaust all we have that we might see more come to worship Your great name, to sing the praises of our great Savior, that our heart might be combined, might be molded to Your heart which is a heart of patience, desiring that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.